So before I get to reading the scripture readings, I just want to do a brief reminder as I introduce the text for us again this morning. Remember, we're using the Common Revised Lectionary, and the lectionary is this ecumenical church resource. Many Protestant church, churches use this as a resource to help guide and orient us in what our scripture readings would be on a certain Sunday morning. And so each Sunday, there's an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a gospel reading, an epistle. And so they help us orient us around the church calendar year. And the first half of the church calendar year is Jesus' story. And the second half is our story, the church's story. And as you all know, this is the fifth Sunday of Lent. And so we're moving closer and closer and closer to events of Holy Week. The first passage is from Jeremiah. And this is a bit of an interesting passage. It's a joyful return of the exiles back into the land. And Jeremiah uh, points out to a couple of interesting things, and you'll see it as I read it. One is that the law will be written onto the people's hearts, and the other that there is a new covenant waiting for them. And the second passage is from the Gospel of John. It's already been introduced by Mary. But just a reminder, chapter 12 begins with this interesting episode where Mary takes perfume, this expensive bottle of perfume, and breaks it all over Jesus. And there's an interesting dialogue between Jesus, Judas, and Mary in that encounter. And then right after that is the story where we uh, celebrate Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and it begins the events of Holy Week. And so our stories this morning from the Gospel of John are actually those stories right after that. So even though Palm Sunday is next weekend, imagine ourselves as though it were right after Palm Sunday, and we're already into the story and the events of Holy Week. So with that, I'm going to get to reading 1 Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And the second passage that I'm reading this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Again, you can follow along on the screen, or if you actually want to, you can pull out your Bible too. Listen to the word of God. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. 
Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I became friends with a man named Tim. Tim is a pastor in the Netherlands. And so usually when pastors get together and they become friends, they generally end up talking about, you know, what's the church context that they work in? What is it like to do ministry in the place that you do ministry in? And I was, of course, really interested because I'd never met a pastor from the Netherlands before. And so I was so curious, what was it like to do ministry there? My friend said that it was a profoundly life-giving and challenging place to do ministry in the Netherlands because the community, the place, the country was secular. I asked him what he meant by that. What do you mean when you call a place secular? And he said that being secular in the Netherlands is just a way of life, that implicitly people live their lives believing and thinking that God doesn't exist, that frankly belief in God is something that's not plausible. So he gave me this one example that I thought was a bit funny, and uh, it also illustrated his point, I thought, quite, quite clearly. Tim has two children, a four-year-old and an eight-year-old, and his eight-year-old son got invited to a birthday party with some of the other students in his elementary class. And the birthday party was at a trampoline amusement park. Have any of you ever heard of these trampoline amusement parks? Yeah, there's one in Belmont, I think, and there's another one maybe further south from here. And so it's a big sort of industrial space. Wait, almost there. That's the punchline. So, uh, so it's a space where they just have all these trampolines filled out on the floor. Uh, they're even on the walls. So you can jump off the wall, jump on the ground. Kids love these places. I've been to one, and they're pretty fun too, because the one I went to, it had a basketball hoop. So if you wanted to do your March Madness 360 dunks, you actually could do it <laughs> because you had a trampoline propelling you into the air. So that, I mean, they're really fun. What was interesting about this birthday party is that the trampoline amusement park, it wasn't in some industrial building, but it was actually in a church. So you can kind of make out the detail on the photo, but basically they did strip the inside of the church and they filled it with trampolines. They took away all the religious symbolism, all the Christian art, got rid of all of it, got rid of all the pews. Could you imagine this space filled with trampolines? Here's a pretty funny article I found about this particular church where this trampoline park is. It says, a trampoline center in The Hague is the latest in a long list of businesses in the Netherlands to open a former church building. A long list of businesses to open in a former church building. Planet Jump opened in the Martelaren van Gorsum Church in The Hague earlier this month. Excuse me if I'm not good at the Dutch words. They're difficult. They 
cheekily dubbed this place a trampoline paradise. They're open seven days a week. Have a look at the photos on their website. Repurposing a holy building may seem a little irreverent, but as we wrote earlier, it seems that people prefer repurposing over tearing down. These buildings have memories of baptisms, weddings, and funerals attached to them after all. Also, in what other church could you achieve so many instant ascensions in one hour? <laughs> and then the article goes on to conclude by saying that the name Marta Laren von Gorsum means martyrs of Gorsum, and it refers to 19 Catholic officials who were killed in 1572 by Dutch Protestant freedom fighters. This story to me, I think is, it is illustrative of what it means to live in a secular culture. That building that was once meant for this place for people to lift up in voice and song, glory to God in reading of holy scriptures, that that place is just, it's not plausible anymore to believe in God by what the culture deems to be acceptable. And so you just clear out that space and you put trampolines in. A few weeks ago, somebody told me and referred to our place and our community as a spiritual wasteland of Silicon Valley. Those aren't my words. It's just somebody said that. And so I did a little bit of research. Is this place really that secular as what this person had said? And I looked up in one of the Gallup polls, and it says that 14% of persons in the state of California have no religious preference. And that California is one of the most plural religious states. So more, it's top five. So it has more religions than other, other state in the union. So just given this reality about the secularism and the pluralism of our place and our culture and Silicon Valley, uh, how do these scripture passages help us think about what it means to engage with that kind of a culture and that kind of a community? Let me say up front that there's books that are written about this, about how to engage a secular culture. That's not what I want to do, but I want to just look at these passages if there's insights from them that can help us think about what it means to engage in this kind of a culture, in this kind of a place where the plausible belief of God is not a reality anymore. And one way I think that we can get after this question is that last week's scripture readings and this week's scripture readings are traditionally thought of as scriptures to be used for the context of evangelism and communicating and dialoguing with secular culture. For those of you who weren't here last week, our intern, Ray Medina, preached a sermon on John 3.16. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Now, Ray's point last week that this became sort of a snapshot gospel, but it's also become a billboard for evangelism in the sense that, not in a gracious way, but if you don't believe, then you will perish. It becomes a sense of godly fear and godly fear, communication to people. They take the sentence and flip it on its head and saying that because you don't believe, you will perish. And so this has been one way in which people have communicated with secular culture. Many of us have driven by on highways and seen signs like this. They say hell is real. Many people have told me in my own life that I'm going to hell without actually knowing me or any of my context or my story. These things happen. And in our verse, in John chapter 12, there is a harsh verse. It says, those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This past week, on Wednesday evening, at our Soup and Scripture reading, Trinity's been doing a community Bible study every Wednesday night through the season of Lent. And we were reading these scriptures together, and it seemed like most of us just kept coming back to this verse. Like, why is this in the Bible? 
if you hate your life in this world, then you'll keep it for eternal life. People were just profoundly confused by this. One observation that I would have about both of these passages is that these are words that Jesus speaks to people that already have some sense of belief already. Some sense of engagement. In John chapter 3, these words that Jesus speaks, they're spoken to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who comes to Jesus, who wants to learn and be taught by Jesus. In John chapter 12, it begins with Greeks, people wanting to come see Jesus, and so they go to the disciples. The disciples talk to each other, then they go to Jesus. And those words are spoken to Jesus' disciples, not to the Greeks. One of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbegin, he says that the Christian life, that it is lived in this life-giving tension between godly fear on the one hand and godly confidence on the other. This tension is life-giving because that's where we know grace intimately. So that even when we make mistakes and we miss the mark in life, we can bring that to God. And it only deepens our intimacy with God and our knowledge of that grace and that love that God has for us. Jesus was speaking these words, these harsher words, to people that were already within this context. So that's one observation. They weren't spoken to people that were outside of faith, but they were spoken to words inside. So now I want to give a couple insights for how, maybe how to, some, some good things instead of the negative observations. One is that in verse 26, what follows verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. Again, the audience for these words are Jesus' disciples. But it's if, as if he's saying, hey, the people who came to see me and wanted to see me, they already saw me because you're my disciples. The way that you serve, I will become known and relevant to people in the midst of that service. One of the ways that I saw this at work in the life of Trinity over the past week was on Sunday evening, uh, we had our deacon's dinner for the high school mission trip that's going to Mexico. 35 high school students gathered together, and we invited people last week to, or two weeks ago to become prayer partners for these students that are going on the trip to Mexico. And in two senses, there was servantship and discipleship happening. One was the students who are going to Mexico to serve there, to share God's grace and God's love with other people and to make Jesus known. And then on the other hand, there were the adults that wanted to come alongside them and get to know them on their own terms and to be a people that would pray for them and support them in that mission as they go to Mexico. I just thought that was a beautiful way of seeing service alive in our community. And maybe this part should be a little pat on our back. Our, our mission statement anyways is nurturing community servants inspired by Jesus. So we see Jesus present in the midst of our service. The second insight I want to share from John's gospel is in regards to our big overarching theme for the season of Lent. You've heard this and you'll hear it again. Our theme for Lent has been create space for God. Early on, a few months ago actually, there was a group of people who met together to think about ways that we could help you all, ways to help the congregation experience that in worship, how we can create space for God in our lives. After praying about that for a few weeks, um, this is what the team came up with. At the end of the scripture reading, Jesus is speaking now to a crowd instead of just to his disciples. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. 
So often our communication about salvation and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is focused on the individual level, especially in those negative remarks. Do you believe? It's not just about the individual, but it's this universal hope that's communicated to all. So in that verse, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It's actually to everyone. It's a hope that's available, a grace that's made available to all people. It's not just contained to the individual. In this way, the cross is seen as a universal hope for everyone. It's not just you individually, but everyone that's around you. So in creating space for God in our lives, this text invites us to see the people around us, the people who are sitting next to us, on the other side of the pew, the people in our community, as people who are desired and wanted in community with God. These are people that God wants to be drawn to Jesus. One of the ways that I see this principle alive in the midst of church is often in the service of communion. And as a pastor, I have this great privilege and gift of being able to share the elements with people as they come forward for intinction. And I'm always just struck by, as everybody comes forward, these are the people that God wants to share these gifts of grace with, all of them. It's, a, it's an invitation to grace and love and this universal hope that's shared for all of us. And that's the reality of the cross as well, that God wants all of us to come to Jesus Christ in the midst of the cross. God wants all of us, even the broken people who live in the midst of this life-giving tension of godly fear on the one hand and godly confidence on the other. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we do live in the midst of that tension between godly fear on the one hand and godly confidence on the other. And we just pray that you would be speaking to us this day as we try to look at the others around us in the way that you look at them, that you want to draw them to you, God, and draw them to your son, Jesus Christ, and that you have done this in the midst of the cross and the resurrection. And that is the way that you have shared your grace and your love for every one of us. So help us see others in the way that you see them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So now we're going to transition into a time of response to the sermon, but also as an activity as a part of our offering. This was envisioned by the Art and Lent team to help us create space for God in our lives. Um, and so what we're going to be doing is we're going to transform the surface of the cross. For the next few minutes, maybe you saw in your pews on the inside, there's pages of magazines that are next to you. And what we're going to invite you to do while the music is being played is to, whenever you feel ready, come forward. Take a photo of a person. Um, there'll be a few people that will come forward and they will help you with this activity. And while we're listening to the music, you'll rip off these pieces of the pages and the pictures of people, and we're going to cover the cross with it. And at the end of that time, I will stand the cross up in the stand and Hopefully in this activity, we'll see ourselves and see this universal hope that God has for every one of us in this activity of putting photos of people all over the cross. So whenever you're ready, 
just come forward and Gabby and Sherry and Leslie will help you in this activity. And in this time, um, as you come forward, place your offering in the offering plate as well. We won't pass the offering plate. So if you are unable to come forward, maybe a friend of yours or somebody else who's sitting next to you can help you with that activity.